Well, welcome to Community Church. We are going to begin a study which I'm calling Love Unleashed. And it's going to be a study of the first epistle of John. Now, John is known as the Apostle of Love. And in fact, when he wrote the Gospel of John, he refers to himself never by name, but always as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. And I, I, I just appreciate that mindset, that he recognized that everything about his existence, who he was, was made meaningful because of the love of Jesus Christ. And it is no different for any of us. We receive the love of God by grace, through faith. And when we receive that love, and when we appreciate the magnitude of it, we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, when we appreciate the magnitude of God's love for us, we can do nothing but begin to share it with others, to literally unleash God's love in our lives. Now, we all understand, I think, love, at least somewhat mentally. We, we know what it's like uh, for love to be experienced. But sometimes, love has to go deep. There's a story that I was once told of a father and son who were on a fishing trip. And it was a commercial fishing trip. And it was in some foul weather. And because of the weather, the boat capsized that they were on. And the boy, who was a middle schooler, got caught up in a current and was being pulled out to sea. And the father had a choice. In a moment, he had a choice. What was he going to do? Because the father was a strong enough swimmer to get back to the capsized boat, but his son was being pulled out. And the father chose to swim out to his son and to be pulled out to sea with him. Now that's love. And that is love that begins far before that moment ever occurred. And it's true for us too. Our love experience as we share it with others has to begin far before the moment of testing. You know, it says in in, in Romans chapter 5 that it's admirable for someone to die for someone whom they love. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that he died for us while we were still his enemies. We were sinners far afield of relationship with him. And yet it was at that moment that Christ died for us. And of course, Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So we're going to be looking at love. And what does it mean to be loved by God, to love God in return? We love him, John will tell us, because he first loved us. And we're going to also be looking at what horizontal love looks like. What does it mean for us to gather here together every Sunday and then hopefully on throughout the week, sharing our lives together? in whatever fashion that takes. And giving love towards one another. John talks about all of these things. But it all begins 
in chapter 1. And if you have your Bible with you, open to 1 John. It's on page 2,339 for those of you who haven't yet opened your Bible. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is a very familiar type of language if you have read the Gospel of John. He starts out, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So, John here in his epistle begins by describing the fact that Jesus Christ, that which was from the beginning, was God, was deity. He always has been. Now, it's important to understand this because John is going to be combating some false doctrine about Jesus Christ. Now, John wrote this sometime in the first century, sometime within 70 years or so of his actual experience with Jesus Christ, when he walked the earth with Jesus Christ. But the first four or five centuries of Christian history are full of theologians and Christians wrestling with the notion of who Jesus was. Was he God? Was he man? Was he flesh? Was he a phantom? I mean, all of this stuff we sort of take for granted now, but in those first few centuries, they struggled with who Jesus was. That's why the great creeds came about. They were statements of understanding of who Jesus was. Here John is describing that Jesus was that which was from the beginning with God. He was always with God because he was God. He was a part of that triune fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he invaded creation. That which he created, he became a part of. The Word became flesh. And John says, we have heard that which was from the beginning. We have seen with our eyes that which was from the beginning. We have looked at and our hands have touched that which was from the beginning. So John is describing here this great coming together of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. This absolutely unique person that John had along with his fellow disciples, the privilege of sitting with and living with, as John describes, looking upon, touching with his own hands, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. So John wants to make it known 
that Jesus Christ was God and Jesus Christ was flesh. Because there were teachings that John is combating here that would suggest that Jesus was in fact a phantom, that he only had the appearance of flesh. And John would say, no, that is not true. We lived with him. We saw him. We experienced him. We felt him. That which was from the beginning. Now we proclaim to you. He is the word of life. And this life appeared. And John says we've seen it. And we testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was, which was with the Father. And has appeared to us. Now Jesus Christ it says in, in the Bible is eternal life. We have all kinds of people out there seeking an experience with life, trying to, to get more out of life, a deeper experience with life. For those of you who have been around a few years, you remember the beer commercial that said, go for the gusto. Or grab all you can get because you only go around once. Anybody remember those commercials? I know I keep dating myself with all of these products from the 60s and 70s. But, but that was sort of the mindset. And really, it hasn't changed. The advertising slogans might have changed. But the pursuit of a life that is meaningful, that is deep, that, that has some kind of purpose to it, people are still paying thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars in pursuit of that kind of a life. But the Bible is very clear. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is eternal life. If you want to have that life that is abundant, what the Bible calls the Zoe kind of life or the spiritual depth to life, you must find that in Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed this. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. So the next time a seminar comes by and promises you that for $2,000 it will tell you how to obtain true life, you don't have to go there. Because Jesus here is telling you what eternal life is. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the eternal life. It is found in Jesus Christ, in relationship with Jesus Christ, through the new birth into a spiritual reality that God alone can give. That is what John is proclaiming. This life that has appeared, this life that is abundant in its provision to those who possess it. And John says, we testify and proclaim to you this life. We proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Now, people get all kinds of notions about what it means to be an evangelist or what it means to evangelize or what it means to share your faith. And honestly, I am sure that this is true of every single soul in this room at least at some point in time. I know it's true of me often. But I get all mental about sharing Jesus Christ with people. 
how am I going to share it in a fashion or in a way that is going to convince them, that is going to somehow uh, convert them to the faith? When the simple reality is all we have to do is to proclaim and testify that which we have seen and heard. Now, you are here this morning because someone shared Jesus Christ with you. Now, I can guarantee you this. They did not argue you into the kingdom of God. They did not wrestle you into the kingdom of God. They simply proclaimed Jesus. Now, along the way, you certainly were convinced. Along the way, there was information that crossed your path that told you, that there is a lot of evidence that supports this word. But it all begins with a simple proclamation, a simple testimony of what we have seen and heard and experienced. It's God who does the converting. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work of salvation. We are regenerated, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit. All we have to do, church, is to speak that which we have seen and heard. And I know some of your stories. They are amazing. The work that God has done in your lives is a profound witness and testimony of the presence, the power, and the person of God. And when others see you and hear from you that the power within you is God at work, they are going to be drawn in because the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. The word of God that goes forth, it says in Isaiah 55, will never fail. God says it will always accomplish that which I intend it to accomplish. So I'm just suggesting that we all lighten up a little bit when it comes to sharing our faith and just begin to say what Jesus has done for us, who Jesus is to us, and let him do the work. And just imagine, just imagine a church that is filled with people who love to talk about Jesus. If, if everyone in this building today went out and shared their faith with one person, one person, imagine the impact. And through the week, as God leads us, as the Holy Spirit directs us, we begin to speak out what we have seen and heard and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ under the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, church, this community would be transformed. Love, indeed, would be unleashed. And, and, and the whole point here, John says, is just to engage others in the fellowship that we share with the Father and the Son. Is your life blessed because of your relationship with God? I know it is. Absolutely it is. Don't you want that for others? Last week I talked a little bit about hell, the reality that hell exists, and how terrible a place hell is. Now think about some of the people that you know. Let's just go to the people that you love first. 
that don't believe, that don't share fellowship with the Father and the Son. Is that something you're able to live with? Someone you love going to a devil's hell? Now, again, you're not the one that's going to save them. You're not the one that's going to convert them. But you are the one whose feet are made beautiful by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How lovely on the mountain are those who share the good news. John says, I want my joy to be complete, and that's why I'm writing this to you. I want you to know this Jesus whom I have encountered, this God who sent his own son to die upon a cross that I might have my sins forgiven. I want to proclaim him to you and testify of him so that my joy may be complete. So life is found in Jesus Christ, eternal life, and we are the heralds of that life. This is the message, verse 5. We have heard from him and declare to you. So John now begins to share just to repeat what he has heard from Jesus Christ himself. This is not something originating with John. John says that this is the message we heard from Jesus Christ when he spoke to us in those three and a half years when we walked with him. This is the message that Jesus would share with us. And we are now declaring it to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now it's interesting in Psalm 104 verse 2 it says that God clothes himself with light as a as a garment. And here John says that God, in fact, is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And in, in John chapter 1, John repeats this notion of God as light. He says, In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. The true light that gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Because the world abided in darkness. And he was light. But he came to illuminate the darkness of the world. And here John says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So there's a moral and ethical imperative that accompanies that notion of God as light. Because what does light do? It shines, it illuminates, it reveals, it helps us to understand and see obstacles in our way. Nothing is hidden. The Bible says, from him with whom we have to do. Because God is light. And his light illuminates the darkness and discards it. God is light. In him there is no darkness. And if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. So if we are claiming to be Christians, we must deal with this This differentiation between light, that which is God-related, and darkness, that which opposes him, or that which he has come to eliminate or to remove. 
John says we cannot have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. And the notion here, like I said, it's, a, it's an ethical, moral imperative. It's about how we live our lives. The integrity with which we carry ourselves as Christians. Because as Christians, our message has to be consistent with our movement. We can't say one thing and yet do another. Jesus says, don't proclaim me as Lord and yet do not the things which I tell you to do. That's a bad witness of who I am, Jesus would say. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We then have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So what does it mean, then, to walk in the light? What does it mean for us as Christians to walk in the light? You know, as I was watching Alicia play, is she back there? Nope, she's not. Okay. Well, then I won't embarrass her. But as I was watching her play this morning, I was watching her fingers, and I was just thinking to myself, astounding. Same could be said of this gentleman right here. Master musicians. But I'm, I'm telling you, when they first picked up an instrument, they weren't able to do that. They picked up an instrument just like everybody else did and began to practice and do their scales and do their exercises and do all of the things that would lead to, ultimately, their ability to master their instrument. So too is it with us when we walk in the light. The Bible says, Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When we pick up this book and we begin as little children to live by the precepts within this book that we can grasp, that we can understand, we begin to walk in the light. Now, the newborn Christian is not going to have the depth of understanding that someone who has walked in the light for 40-plus years is going to have. But they are walking in the light. They are walking in the illumination that this Word has provided for them as the Holy Spirit has made it clear to them. So walking in the light means walking in our best understanding of this book, the revelation that God has given to us in his word. You see, he's given us revelation first through creation. We look around us and we see all of the creation, the beautiful creation that testifies to a creator. We look at the mountains around us and we say, God must be a creator because everything we see around us. But from that revelation, God has given us further revelation. He has given us his written word from Genesis to Revelation. His Holy Spirit has breathed into the lives of authors who have penned God's thoughts. An historical recounting of everything that has occurred that is relevant to salvation. 
And so in this word, we get a deeper revelation of who God is, an understanding of what he wants from us and for us. But ultimately, God is revealed in his son. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God the Father. Jesus, in the upper room, said to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long that you do not know me? Because Philip had asked to see the Father. He said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And he says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation or revelation of God to mankind. And so that is the light, church, within which we walk. And we grow in that light. It grows brighter and brighter for us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And clearly we read in John chapter 1 that he was the true light that had come into the world. Okay, we can accept that. That sounds right, doesn't it? Jesus is God. He's the light. But you know what he said about every one of you? He said, you're the light of the world. And Peter wrote that we have been saved out of darkness and we have come into his marvelous light. So we are children of light. We are not children of darkness. We are reflectors of his glorious light. And we walk in that light. We walk as Christ followers, as word bearers, as children of the day. That is what John is saying. That's what it means to walk in the light. It means to follow after Jesus Christ. And it says when we do that, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, entering into the last part of the chapter, John is going to combat a notion that has arisen within, unfortunately, the Christian church of his time and remains a problem for us throughout history up until this very moment. The issue of what happens with sin when we become Christians. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Just as he said there in verse 7. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sin, if we acknowledge the reality that we are combating the sin problem in our lives, it says when we confess that battle, we will have victory because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all of unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. As Christians walking in the light, we have to address the sin issue. We cannot indulge in sin and say, because grace is so amazing, and my sin is forgiven, it doesn't matter how much I sin, because I'm forgiven. That is 
Something that, again, from the very early days of Christianity was a problem within the church. People who sinned without hesitation, understanding grace to mean that they would be forgiven of whatever sin they ever committed. And so they sinned without conscience. The other side of that coin is to say we are without sin. To say that we have achieved or arrived at a point in life where sin no longer is a battle for us. John's going to deal with this issue throughout this epistle because this is a teaching that is coming into the church. And John says, I've got to combat it. He said, you can't say that you don't deal with sin, nor can you say that his grace allows you to sin without consequence. The simple solution is confession. Confession of sin, the acknowledgement that it exists, that it has had an impact on us. And when we do that, he is faithful and just, both to forgive us of our sins, but also then to purify us from all unrighteousness, to, to give us that holy, moral cleansing that our lives require. When we become Christians, we are born again of the Spirit. But it's very clear from the Scriptures that we remain in these bodies of flesh up until the point of resurrection. And because of that reality, we have a battle to fight. We have a battle to fight. Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't get caught up once again in letting sin be your master. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, this is in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been the slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Now, these are people who, at the time they spoke, were literally under the yoke of Rome. So they had been under authority of other nations. But let's suppose that they're speaking more personally. We've never been personally a slave. Jesus replies to them, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed, just as Paul wrote to the Galatians. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. Well, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. 
We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God, and I have not come on my own, but God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? It's because you're unable to hear what I have to say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his native language, for he is a liar and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear me is that you do not belong to God. These guys had a religious system that beat every other religious system hands down. It had been given to them by God. They had the commandments of God etched in stone that had been given to them. And yet, because of that religious notion, because they were not willing to confess their sinfulness and acknowledge their need for God, they were slaves of sin. They were, in fact, Jesus said, children of the devil. That's what John is saying to us here in the conclusion of chapter 1. He's saying, if you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you. If you're saying... That, that you can do whatever you want to, that sin has no control over you. In fact, sin has become your master. But if you acknowledge that you are a sinner and you confess your sin to God because of his blood sacrifice at the cross, because of his resurrection from the dead three days later, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to give you a new life where the Son has truly set you free. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the life, eternal life that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And we proclaim it. We testify to it. We thank you for the light of your word that communicates to us the reality of what it means to be your disciple and what it means to follow you. I pray that you would help each one of us to live in that life, in that light, and to not be taken captive ever again by the reality of sin that enslaves. Help us to walk in the true freedom that you intend for us. In Jesus' name, amen.